The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show, everyone. Great to see so many friendly names and faces in our chat rooms. And of course, uh, welcome to all of you who are listening in a way that doesn't give you a chat room. You're missing out on part of the fun, but uh, we welcome you nonetheless. We've got a great ghost-oriented show for you tonight. We're going to be talking with Mark Leslie. Mark is an author. He's written a lot of nonfiction and fiction. But tonight we're going to talk about the nonfiction stuff, particularly the nonfiction paranormal stuff. His new book is called Haunted Hospitals. We're going to talk about those hospitals, his stories, uh, and some of his other paranormal work as well. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our Twitch channel. Both of them can be found just by going to uh, J.V. Johnson. Just search J.V. Johnson. You'll find the channels. Subscribe and follow or whatever you have to do. If you want to subscribe to the Twitch channel uh, and you have an Amazon Prime account, you can use that Amazon Prime account. You can connect it and you'll get a basically a free subscription to the Twitch channel. You can follow without having to have a subscription, but the subscription gives you some bonuses and benefits and stuff like that. So anyway, we've got a lot of great things going on, a lot of great people in our chat rooms, and the chat rooms are associated with our YouTube channel and our Twitch channel if you're looking for them. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mark Leslie is our guest. He's an author. We're going to be talking about several of his nonfiction books that relate about relate to the paranormal, including the new one called Haunted Hospitals. Mark, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us tonight. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. And I have to say, I have no hair, so no flicking <laughs> happening at all. Well, you know, it's funny. As I was starting this, to tell this anecdote and I started to bring you into it, I remembered <laughs> that you don't have any hair, so you probably don't have that same problem. Um, but we all, we all are struggling through this in our own way, I suppose. But, you know, one of the things that I find really fascinating and it, that excites me about this conversation is I've heard you speak about this before, and... Um, I see a lot of parallels in some of your experiences as a child or as a youth and mine, particularly as it relates to being afraid of the dark. And you're still afraid of the dark. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here uh, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, all the lights on in the room because, you know, you never know. And where does this come from? Because I know where it came from for me. And I still have some of these same fears, too. So I'm right in the same boat. But where did it come from for you? I can't identify a specific instance in my life. I just know I've always been afraid of the dark. I've always been afraid of the dark, and I think because there's always something that can be hiding in the dark, and it's that fear of the unknown that I've always had. Um, really overactive imagination as a child, and so I was seeing seeing things <laughs> in the dark, seeing monsters under the bed, seeing them in my closet, the whole bit. Where, where did where did yours come from? Because I, I can't determine what the source was. It was just an overall fear. Well, I had, um, you know, I had this fascination with late night horror movies. And I'm talking about when I was still quite young, you know, six, seven years old. And I would beg my mother to stay up and watch some of these movies. And I can vividly remember watching the original Bella Lugosi Dracula for the first time. 
I could not sleep in my room with the lights off and without a, my mother used to make these wooden crosses and put them on my, around the floor, around my bed, you know, to ward <laughs> off vampires for weeks, for weeks, really? Mark. I, I, and it still kind of haunts me to this day. It's funny you should mention an old movie like that because The Changeling, George C. Scott. Oh, yeah. I think I must have, my parents were up and I got up to go to the washroom and I must have seen just a few scenes, <laughs> which were enough to imprint on my memory. There was the ball, the ball bouncing down the stairs, oh, yeah. the, the wheelchair, and then there was the walking. I just remember walking up the stairs to this door and there was a door in our basement with a, to the basement washroom. That looked the same. No, no, most doors look the same, right? Sure, they have the sure. same look and feel. Or something, right. But I just, I was, I was convinced that the basement door in our house was the door from the change lane, and that there was something behind that door that I shouldn't go into. Uh, so yeah, it's funny how how those those movies you see as a child can just haunt haunt you to this day. I have this film, and and I'm starting to doubt whether my memories are accurate. But um, there's this scene of a film that still sits in my mind, and I've been dying to figure out what film it is. Um, I remember it in black and white, but then again, we had a black and white television when I was a kid. So that could have been the problem. I'm not sure. But it was this scene of a of a woman in a bed in a bedroom and the door of, to the bedroom was open. You could see down the hall and at the end of the hall, like I think her husband was in the other room, but in the bed that she was in underneath, a trap door started to open and cool. something was coming out of this trap door. And that's all I can remember. And I have been searching for this film uh, forever. Now it could have been a TV show. It could have been. It could have been anything. Right, you know, right. my memory tells me it was a film I was watching with my mom. But uh, who knows? Who knows? But it still scares me. And you never know. You're going to mention it one time, and sometime a listener is probably going to know what it is and, and write in and tell you about it. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's my hope too. I hope that actually happens. And the other thing, and, and I think that you, you know, you still have this sense that you know, geez, what's hiding under the bed? I'm not going to let my arm dangle over because I know something's down there. Of course. <laughs> and I can yeah, actually, uh, we have a bed uh, right now that uh, it's just a box spring that sits right on the floor because. It's perfect because no monsters can hide under that. It's <laughs> ideal for me. See, that's that's genius right there. You've solved the yeah. problem. Um, and the other thing I can't do is I can't sleep without covers because I know that the covers are my shield against anything evil that might be lurking in the room at night. Of course, they're magic. It doesn't matter how hot it is <laughs> in the middle of summer. You still need just that thin layer of magic to protect you. Yeah, and in fact, I have to compensate by making sure the room is like cooled to 66 degrees so that I can make sure I can have those covers on. Because <laughs> it's it's there's a method to our madness here, Mark. This is not random. Of course, no, no, no. There's, there's a grand design to all this. So you, um, you've written a lot of nonfiction. You've written fiction. Uh, you know, you've you've about twenty books or so, I think, maybe more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a little more. How'd you get started? I think I, I mean I was always uh, I had this overactive imagination, so I always saw, and it, it tended to be darker, scarier things. I always wondered what if, right? So. When I was a child, I remember uh, going out in the woods and, uh, you know, if I saw something in the woods, uh, you know, I assumed it was Bigfoot, right? Not a bear or not some other creature. I assumed it was some sort of supernatural, uh, you know, um, cryptoid uh, kind of figure that was inexplainable. And so whenever I, I wanted to tell stories or imagine things, I always wanted to share stories to, I don't know, maybe I wanted to make other people as scared as I was so that I wouldn't be alone. Maybe, you know, misery loves company, but there's nothing I love more, even now as an adult, 
sitting around a campfire and just sharing a scary story. Like that is that that to me is the ultimate thing. It's when when you can actually have a group of people around there. And and I remember that from Cub Scouts when I was a kid, just waiting for my turn to to tell a story. Um, you know, and and there's those classic ghost stories that you just get repeated and and regurgitated over and over and over. You know, the the, the tales of the hook and the the couple in the car or whatever, right? So so that just drew me, and I always wanted to explore the what if. It wasn't until I was an adult that I started to do the nonfiction true ghost stories. I didn't, I didn't even realize it's a thing that I could do. Those ghost stories, um, you know, one that sticks in my mind is, is uh, this, I don't even know how the story goes. And I'm a horrible storyteller. I just don't have that gift. Um, but I know that the end of this particular story, I think it's a girl sitting in the chair and she's, quote, unquote, petting the dog. And it turns out the dog, it wasn't the dog. It was the, the lunatic that broke into the house's hair. You know, that, yeah, that's yeah, one of the good ones. Yeah, and her hands and she thought it was the dog licking her and she would reach out for comfort and he would lick her hands. Oh, oh my God, yeah, those, those kind of stories. I loved those stories. And, and, and I thought it'd be fun to make those stories up. And, uh, and, and that's what I do. I mean, a lot of my stories are very Twilight Zone-ish in nature. They're kind of reality, but they have some weird, <laughs> some weird twist to it. Makes them fun. And, uh, yeah. What is it about the thrill of controlled, I'll call it, controlled fear that most people have that, that desire to, to be in a controlled environment and to get scared a little bit? Where does that come from? No, I mean, we do it in roller coasters and things like that. But I think what happens is when when you read about it, when you watch a movie, when, when you're sharing a story, it ends, right? It's over. And whether or not you can explain what the, what the evil thing was that was trying to get everyone, it's over and you can escape from it, unlike, uh, you know, a lot of, of, of reality. So I think there's there's a cathartic thing for me as well. It's almost um, you know that um, not that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But sometimes uh, being uh, and I'll, I'll relate this to hot peppers. When I was younger, I couldn't eat a lot of hot and spicy food. Just a, a drop of Tabasco in a giant thing of chili would be more than I could bear. But you you slowly gain a little bit more tolerance. Right. And so you just need a little bit more spice to make it painful and enjoyable. It's a little bit more spice and a little bit more spice. And I think sometimes uh, sometimes I feel that way because I'm still a chicken. But I was like, well, hey, I've actually gone on ghost walks in a group of 20 or 30. I've actually gone on ghost <laughs> walks. I've actually gone exploring with uh, one other person in a haunted hotel, you know, uh, looking for Angela the ghost. You know, I, I'm that brave now. I would never do it myself. But I think as as you get more and more acclimatized, you're you're willing to try a little bit more and, and sort of test your own limits, which I think I think we're always testing our own limits as humans. I'm curious as to what you think, since you obviously have created um, some of these stories, stories whether they're thrillers or horror type stories yourself. How does the ending affect us? Now, we just talked about the fact that most people enjoy the thrill of that controlled scare. But, you know, there was a time when most of these movies ended on a, on a, on a uh, positive note or a hopeful note. And, in fact, there's a, there's a classic story about one of my favorite films, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the original ending was too dark. So they made them add the tag yeah. ending where there was going to be a hope for mankind to survive at the end. Um, but that's not so, so, so much true anymore. A lot of movies end very darkly. How do we as people handle those two different types of endings, whether it's a hopeful ending or a very somber or dark ending? 
It's it's interesting because I think uh, it, it's difficult for Hollywood to get away with those dark endings. Like you said, they, they, they had to redo the ending of the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it was just too dark. It was just too disturbing. Um, but then sometimes the, the the happy ending, when it's satisfying or has a, a positive resolution, I think of the end of The Stand, for example, one of you know Stephen King's masterpieces. Right. You know, both the novel and I remember the the television uh, series version that I, I watched. You know, the hand of God comes down and just saves everyone at the end. You're like, well, what? Really? I wasted you know twelve thousand <laughs> or twelve hundred pages just to get to this. <laughs> yes, the good guys win, but that's not the way I want them to win. <laughs> I don't want some some magic thing to come down and save everyone. So I think. We need the ending to make sense according to all of the details that the creator set forth, like that the writer, that the storyteller set forth. And so when you think about a movie like The Sixth Sense, no spoilers here, but when you look at The Sixth Sense, you feel, oh, my God, M. Night Shyamalan tricked us. No, he didn't trick you. He led you to believe something based on you making a whole bunch of assumptions in the series throughout the whole movie. And you get to the end, and, and you can't be mad at him because he didn't tell you that, you know, you know that Bruce Willis's character was dead. Right. <laughs> but he didn't tell you who was alive. <laughs> right, right. Again, so, you were making the assumptions yeah. all the way along. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, I actually like, uh, I don't know if it was the follow-up movie to that, but The Village. Oh, yeah. I like that even but more. Um, and another, another ending with a twist. Yeah, and and again, when you look at movies like that where there's a twist, the the storyteller is relying on what he knows the reader or the viewer is going to intuit based on facts. Right. Which shows us that reality can be deceptive, which also shows us that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophies, that there are things beyond our comprehension that are there, but we just can't see them uh, sometimes until it's too late. Mark, you um you started writing um, as a basically a preteen or an early teenager. Uh, did you know at that point? I think at thirteen years old, I I saw that you you wrote your first book. Yeah. Uh, did you know at that point you wanted to be a writer for, as a professional? Yeah, I knew uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer from from those early times, those early days, just telling stories with little Fisher Price characters when I was really young, and then when I discovered the permanence of of I could put something on paper and walk away and someone else could pick it up and enjoy it. That, that was magic. That was powerful. So I knew I wanted to be a writer. What kind of surprised me was a story I wrote when I was in my teens. It was about a middle-aged man who was writing paranormal books, books on the paranormal, about UFOs and <laughs> creatures and, and ghosts and stuff like that. And it was this uh, dark, humorous uh, story and the main character was a middle-aged man writing uh, true ghost story books and that that's what he did for a living and I never realized that that would become me you know 25 <laughs> 30 years later uh, that kind of caught me by surprise I remember going back to that story and saying wait a second I was writing about myself when I was you know I think I wrote that story when I was 16 and I didn't realize that that was going to be me in the future so that was kind of a, a weird sort of foreboding that sometimes has happened in the writing I'm not going to say that uh, you and I are old. I won't say that because we're not. However, we <laughs> no, are we're old. En- we're old enough to have lived through a very uh, what I would consider to be a major revolution in publishing. We went from, um, and not that we don't need libraries anymore, but uh, libraries with 
volumes of printed books, and that's how you had to read your stuff. Um, now right. everything can be downloaded to a, a smartphone or a pad or a computer or whatever, uh, and it's it's all digital. How has that changed uh, the world for authors, and how has it changed it for the the world for readers? Oh, uh, you know what? I, I say this because, uh, you know, with a different hat on, uh, I work in the book industry, and, and I help authors and publishers and readers with access to digital materials. I also half my books are traditionally published, the other half are self-published. I think there's never been a greater time for readers or writers, because when you think about the history of publishing, you think about, you know, scrolls, then Gutenberg invented the print and press, and right. that meant more people had access to, to it. wasn't just, oh, if a monk could handwrite something for you, you could have it. So then, then the mass market paperback and pulp fiction uh, meant you know more people could afford to read and enjoy these great science fiction stories and all kinds of great tales. And then, and that, and that birthed writers like Ray Bradbury, who really, you know, when you talk to most writers today who write speculative horror and science fiction, they they credit people like Bradbury. But then when the Kindle came out and the iPad and and the, all of the different ebook formats, suddenly more people had access to reading than ever before, regardless of location. I grew up in a small northern Ontario town with a small library. It was an hour drive into the big city of 90,000 people where there were bookstores. I, if I needed books and the library was closed, that was it. I couldn't get anything. Now I could just download them to my phone. So for readers, they've never had more choice. And for writers, more choice. I'll give you an example. Um, Macabre Montreal was a recent book that I co-authored with Shana Krishnasamy. Now, Montreal's second largest uh, city in uh, Canada. And our editor actually had us cut four chapters from the book because he said they were too disturbing, too dark. Too oh, wow. uh, two of them were about serial killers. Um, and so uh, we're releasing uh, two macabre for Montreal ourselves, um, you know, in print and in ebook form. And, and again, it's only going to be about 15,000 words. But we feel that there's probably some readers who want those dark stories. It's yeah. called Macabre Montreal, after <laughs> all. So the thing I love about our publishing industry is I have a choice that I can work with publishers. And so, you know, um, Dundurn, a brilliant publisher, but published Haunted Hospitals and Creepy Capital and Tomes of Terror and a whole bunch of my other books. You know, those books are available broadly through bookstores everywhere. They've gotten my books in a Walmart, Costco. It's phenomenal. But... They're never going to want to publish this 18,000-word collection of stories that they thought were too disturbing or too dark. But I can, and I can satisfy other readers who want those. And then people who don't want the disturbing, darker stuff, well, they stick to the light, the lighter fare of Macabre Montreal. So uh, I think it's amazing for both readers and writers that you can have those niche, niche opportunities. I'm going to tell you a fear that I have, and I want you to tell me if you think it's unfounded or if it's something we need to be vigilant about. Um, my concern with the move to digital is that we don't have a printed record of some of these this work, at least any any significant printed record of some of this work. And in, and if I take that a step further, I mean, we're seeing libraries pull books, classic works of literature off their shelves, off the shelves because of what we we consider to be some changes in political correctness or attitudes. Um, but those are still classic works of literature and they're being taken off these library shelves. Do we run the risk of if we're in a digital publishing world of having those works actually altered in a digital digital sense or, or censored in a digital sense that maybe a printed book form wouldn't 
be subject to and, uh, you know, kind of a big brother approach to publishing? Is that a fear of yours? Because it's kind of a fear of mine. Yeah, I think so. And it, it's kind of ironic because I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. This was uh, the Kindle was only a few years old. And there was an uh, invalid version, uh, ironically, of George Orwell's 1984 that uh, Amazon went and took out of everyone's Kindles. So they purchased oh, wow. it, and it was it was either an invalid or there's something wrong with it. There was some copyright issue with it. So they, they just shouldn't have been able to sell it. They ended up selling it. But they went, they're not going to sneak into your house and grab the book off the shelf. Right. But they could get it going to your Kindle, and they can grab it. I also know, because I worked for Kobo, which is Canada's version of Kindle, and I know that these companies can actually, they know what pages you're on in each of the books because they're stored <laughs> in the cloud. They can see how fast you turn your pages. All of these amazing demographics that are a little bit terrifying. Now, when it comes to digital, yeah, you know, uh, a sun burst could, could wipe out all of them. Electromagnetic pulse, could we could lose them. But one of the things I learned when I worked at Kobo was people who read e-books buy twice as many print books as they used to before they started reading ebooks because they're oh, okay. reading way more mm-hmm. because they have access to right on their phones on their on their kindles or kobos or or the pads the, uh, the tablets they carry around they're reading more because it's easier every book is a large print book right if you they have a dyslexic font for example which you can't you know um, always get that in a regular print book so you, the, the book can can suit your needs when it's electronic right and then a lot of people especially me even when I do a lot of research I buy a ton of book on books on you know true hauntings and things like that I I do the research uh, I may get the electronic book I may buy the book for five or eight dollars electronically but then if I really need to dig into it I go and order a print copy or I, I get it from my local bookstore. I order it online and I use that for my research because I find a tactile experience of studying and reading. It, it seems to, uh, it, well, it's also easier. I can, I'm in my office right now surrounded by books. I can turn around and grab a book off yeah. the shelf way easier than I can open up my phone and try and find that, that, that locale. So I think there is that fear, but I think um, the book isn't dead. <laughs> It just had babies, right? It's just a new <laughs> format. So vinyl, when you think about electronic music, right, MP3s and Spotify and everything, vinyl is, is undergoing a huge resurgence. And vinyl hasn't died or gone anywhere. Now, 8-tracks did. But um, it kind of leads to the other question is, what's the real song? Is it the song that you can hear on your iPhone? Is it the song that you hear when you play the, the vinyl record? Is it the cassette? Is it the, is it the CD? What is the real song? Uh, and you get the same discussions when it comes to books. But the, the true the true story is that the actual communication between one human to another, the storyteller, that's the true story. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I, I actually have been doing a, a side program using um, – I've got out a couple turntables and I've been playing some vinyl and uh, having a lot of fun remembering what it's like to actually invest yourself in putting a needle on a record – and yeah. to, to play it as opposed to just flipping through your phone or whatever it happens to be. And I also say this, eight tracks were just a bad idea from the start. <laughs> they were just, a, oh my God. So, the audio quality <laughs> of eight tracks is so bad. I can't believe anybody ever bought them. Um, let me take this conspiracy idea one step further. And this really isn't the topic we had, we we're going to talk about tonight, but I, I find it <laughs> fascinating and you really seem to know a lot about it. But um, if we take this whole big brother idea with publishing a step further, as you pointed out, uh, you know, these, these, 
companies can tell what page you're on or what books you have yeah. on your on your Kindle or your iPad or whatever it happens to be. What if um, in college I took some political courses and I, I read Mein Kampf, I read the Communist Manifesto, yeah. Manifesto, I read some really what would be considered controversial works. And um, what if someday along the line they say, you know what, anybody who's got Mein Kampf on their on their their Kindle, we need to uh, pay them a visit. I mean, yeah. that, that, that scares me a little bit. Um, you, you know, it's funny you should mention that because I actually wrote a, a short story, a horror story um, called Active Reader, which is about a, a bookstore loyalty program where a serial killer gets a hold of, of a database that basically this is before digital books existed. When I wrote this, it finds out what books people have bought because, you know, if you have a loyalty membership with a, with a book chain, you know, they know what books you bought, where you bought them, what format, when when you bought them, how you paid for it. Right. So he finds uh, people who've read certain books and decides to kill them based on books that they've read. So, I mean, we've had that way before digital books. We've had that ability. And so um, I think I wrote that story out of a fear of, and this was early days of tracking. Like now, you know, every almost every new beer I have is tracked on an app, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where I had it, what I thought of it. It, it, there's so much information about us out there that, um, yeah, uh, it could be a terrifying thing. Like, what if we decide that the books that you read have corrupted you and therefore you need to be eliminated? Yeah. Um, that, yeah, like, it, it, there's some real, I mean, and, that, and I think that's why I like to write speculative fiction, because I ponder these things like you do, but then I wonder, well, well, what would happen? <laughs> what would happen if, if suddenly they found out I read Mein Kampf and, you know, when I, because I was studying politics in university but they don't know that they right. you know they just intuited that whatever and so yeah there's all kinds of uh, misinformation that can come from too much information okay so i think we've just um done what uh most horror writers set out to do and scared a lot of people <laughs> but not with not with what would be traditionally considered a horror uh theme anyway <laughs> Let's let's talk about ghosts a little bit, Mark. Um, much of your uh, nonfiction work is related to retelling and exploring stories of hauntings and ghosts. Um, you mentioned kind of uh, developing an interest in this early, but when did you start really focusing on ghosts? And and you said you've done some uh, ghost hunting, if you will. Have you done a lot of that? Uh, I've only done a little bit of ghost hunting with uh, people who are, are more knowledgeable about it than me, like go, going out with experts. Um, but I think uh, so. I, I was never good at history, and I hated history. It's funny. I was talking to my 15-year-old son uh, at dinner tonight, and he loves history. He just loves history class. It's so easy, Dad. And for me, it was, oh, this is boring. It's having to remember dates. And who cares what happened 100 years ago or 50 years ago? It makes no sense to me. And then I was on a ghost walk. In Ottawa, Ontario, so Canada's capital, and these people were dressed in these beautiful black flowing robes, like Victorian dress, and had these old lanterns, and and they were telling us ghost stories about the downtown core of Ottawa, but they couldn't tell the stories without relaying so much of the history. And so suddenly for me, history came alive and I realized that you can't tell a good ghost story without understanding the people who came before you and all of the things that happened. And so that really, really fed my desire to want to tell the stories. And, that, and that's when I realized, I thought, okay, I like telling stories. I like scaring people. I like making things up. But I realized that you could tell true stories. You could gather information and details, and you could relay that story in such a way that you can provide the same amount of chills 
And you could even not only entertain people, but you can inform them and inspire them to learn something about the city that they're in or the locale or the people or the history or whatever. And and that that really fueled my passion for wanting to tell those ghost stories. And that's kind of how the very first book I I released in 2012, Haunted Hospitals, that was nonfiction paranormal. That's when I realized, hey, there's something here. Uh, ironically, that was the first book I'd been nominated for a literary award for, and I thought, that's interesting. I get nominated for a literary award for a book of ghost stories, like true ghost stories. And, and you would you normally think that the literary culture would, would look down their nose at a book like that. So it was kind of ironic that that was the first time I'd been, uh, you know, I'd been honored with, with, with such an award. And so... Yeah, that was, it's just kind of, now Now I'm almost addicted to gathering stories. Anytime I hear someone start to tell a story, I, I lean forward and I was like, ooh, could you tell me more? Hey, would you mind telling me more? Could I use this in a book someday? Have you noticed a change in attitude among people in, in uh, terms of their acceptance of uh, hauntings or ghosts or even just the discussion of hauntings and ghosts? Have you, uh, over the last 20 yeah. years or so, have you seen a change? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I think um, it, it's funny. If, if if I were to say, you know, I, I write horror stories, a lot of people would like turn, look the other way, not make eye contact with the crazy person and, and move. But when I, if I say, oh, I, I write true ghost stories, they, they lean in and, 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 and everyone is fascinated with what happens when we die. Everyone is fascinated with the unexplainable, the things that we just have no tactile means of identifying or or laying down with scientific proof, right? When we have measures and different tools that we use, you know, to, to measure frequencies and things uh, for some paranormal experience, but for the most part, we can't explain it. And people are fascinated by that. And they, we constantly, we, I mean, humankind is constantly wondered about that. Uh, I, I remember ghost stories around the, the turn of the uh, century for the 1900s, newspapers would have columns dedicated to ghost stories and it almost feels like that's coming back again that um that there is some underlying current in 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 our world that is is allowing people to want to share more openly about things they just can't explain Uh, and so i think i think i've seen just in the last uh, 10 15 years uh a a stronger acceptance of people who actually want to talk about these things rather than, you know, sweep them out of the carpet. Oh, no, no, we don't, we don't talk about that. No, no, I want to talk about this weird experience that I can't explain. I think I saw the spirit of, you know, my dead uncle, or I think I heard this disembodied voice of somebody who is a thousand miles away and I can't explain it. I think people really want to share those experiences. When you started writing about this particular topic or started to take an interest in it, maybe it was the interest came earlier than the actual writing, did you go into it as a believer, as a skeptic, somewhere in between? I, I went in as a believer, but the approach that I take when I write the books is I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a believer with a skeptical attitude because I am trusted by the reader to relay stories, and I'm not just going to take anything that sounds cool. I'm going to actually try to do some research or at least relay what was told to me and try to illustrate it. And I'll give you an example. One of the stories from Haunted Hamilton was about Murder Mansion, and it was this uh, mansion on, on Hamilton, Ontario Mountain, that uh, the, the man 
in the middle of the night, uh, a house people had avoided and had been boarded up for years and abandoned. Uh, he had, um, uh, and the, the reason was because this guy had butchered his family with a, uh, an axe he found in the shed in the middle of the night, and then he hung himself on the third floor uh, widow's walk. And then, uh, as, as the legend went, the next family that moved into the house, the 17-year-old boy found the very same axe and butchered the family in the exact same way and hung himself in the exact same location. Oof. And and this is a great story. I loved yeah, it yeah. when I heard it. And I and I went in and to, to do is I researched the house and the historic and who built it and stuff like that. And then as I was looking into it, there were no axe murders in Hamilton in the you know the fifty year period when that happened. And uh, you know I even I contacted the police because. And then, and then the other thing that bothered me is, well, wouldn't the axe be if if this axe was used as a murder weapon, would it still be in the shed, or would it be locked up in some evidence cabinet somewhere? So, uh, you know, when you put the story together, I went, "Huh." The story came out around the same time that The Shining was really popular mm-hmm. with Jack Nicholson chasing his family around. Now, the stories about the ghosts in the house and all of the things, and there's still some weirdness about that lot. That when that building got torn down. It's been 15 years now, and nothing has been built on that lot still for some bizarre reason, and it's prime real estate. I don't know why. Um, but I did I, – I wrote two or three pages in the book explaining why uh, this probably isn't true, and here's why. And my editor came back and said, oh, you, you've got the true believer there, and would you, you just kick them right out of the book. What, what, what are you doing there? And I said, well, I, I've got to be honest with them because they, they, they have to believe in me. So we, 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 we negotiated it down to at least a paragraph. And I still end the chapter with, okay, I don't think this one is real, but isn't that a cool story anyway? And you still can't explain those weird things people saw. Right in this abandoned house, the woman with the flaming red hair running, screaming down the hallway as if someone were chasing her. Yeah, if you think back to the axe story, it's cool, but it's still kind of creepy on its own. Uh, and so those are the kinds of stories. So I, I, I do try to approach it with what I call a journalistic, you know, I'm going to report the, 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 the senses and what people explain, but I'm also going to approach it with a believer's attitude of saying, but we don't know or we can't explain what this is. What do you think this is? Um, because that's part of the, that's part of the fun of a, of a ghost story, too. It's interesting to draw the parallels between uh, the origination of a story, um, the community that it originates in, and then what's going on in pop culture at the time. You mentioned The Shining, you know, as as it relates to the timeline of that particular story you just told. Um, You know, another one that's perfectly uh, good example of that is the number of um, possession stories that came out after The Exorcist, you know, was a hit film, you know. Um, In fact, I I actually attribute much of the Amityville uh, saga to the success of The Exorcist. But um, it's funny to draw those connections and try to, you know, connect those dots. Well, it's funny because uh, I did that when I was uh, writing Spooky Sudbury. And Sudbury, Ontario, is a mining community, uh, one of the nickel capital of the world, actually, and it's in uh, mid-northern Ontario. And when I was first doing Spooky Sudbury, we thought, okay, there's going to be – I knew there was a weird thing that happened with UFOs in the 70s where they actually sent fighter pilots from um, Colorado Springs up to Sudbury to intercept these objects that they found uh, in the sky. And there's like pages and pages of classified documents because they never did reveal what happened in in the skies over Sudbury. This was 1976, so I was was a child living in the the town there. I remember the the freakiness of – you know, didn't know if it was like the Russians coming in trying to evade or uh, invade or whatever. But 
I thought there might be a chapter on UFOs, but when I started to dig into the research, it was like the 50s. There's a chapter on the 50s, then the 60s and the 70s. And one of the things I noticed is the patterns of the stories were very much tied to the culture, like you said. And I remember when uh, Close Encounters came out, uh, the, the movie, there was a lot of similar experiences. When movies like E.T. came out, there was a lot of experiences with seeing uh, creatures like that. So you wonder if, uh, it, it's sort of one of two things. Is, is our, are our imaginations fueled by the things that we saw, like those movies we talked about that we're frightened of? And so that helps sort of tinker with our imaginations a little bit? Or do we suddenly become aware of something that we may have not paid attention to before? It's kind of like when you, 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 you recognize a, a new brand of car or something that a friend owns, right. and you've never seen that brand before, and then suddenly everywhere you go you see it on the right. road, and you're like, oh, wow, everyone's got one of those cars now. It's, it, I think it, it could be that too. Like Maybe it was always there. Maybe you just didn't see it before. Tonight we're talking with Mark Leslie. Mark is an author. He's written books such as Haunted Hospitals, Spooky Sudbury, and others that tell uh, ghost stories and tales of the macabre, if you will. And, Mark, before we get back into talking about haunted hospitals, I have to ask you about something else that I found very interesting about you, is that you're a craft beer lover. Tell us about this love of craft beer. Oh, my goodness. There's nothing like discovering a great local a brewer. I mean, I travel a lot uh, as a writer and um, <clears throat> someone who works in the industry. So I would often try to find like the local beer. And, and just in the last 10 years, the scene has exploded. Um, I've tried uh, so far just in the last four or five years. And I started tracking uh, more than 5,000 different uh, beers, uh, oh, wow. which I check in on, on untapped. And uh, ironically, it kind of leads to a, a pet project that uh, my partner and I have been working on because uh, she loves craft beer just as much as I do and loves traveling and loves uh, – she's explored a lot of haunted places with me. We've actually had a couple weird experiences, paranormal experiences uh, when traveling, but uh, we're working on Spirits Untapped Haunted Bars and Breweries. Oh, very cool. Then yeah. If I can com- yeah, if I can combine our love of craft beer and uh, haunted places – uh, I mean, we've been researching this book for years, and it's going to take a while to write because it's a really good tax write-off. <laughs> a good excuse to get into some great bars and breweries, and and the people have been amazing. When I when I go to a place that's haunted, and I tell them, "Oh, I'm Mark Leslie. I'm the author of you know Haunted Hospitals and uh, haunt, uh, Tomes of Terror and other other haunted locations," and um and and ask about the the ghosts uh, when I get the right person. They'll say, oh, do you want to come into the basement and see where the ghost has been seen? Do you want to go up and see the attic that no one ever gets to go see? And it's just, it's amazing how accommodating and wonderful people are when you're working on a book like that. Uh, I, I kind of did the same thing, um, combined my love for being a broadcaster with a program that I do on weekends called Booze, Brews, and Bros. And uh, oh. we, we talk about a whole bunch of things like this, but in a more casual way. And we have a few beers while we're doing it. And uh, Oh, that sounds like that sounds uh, ideal. I don't know why I'm not a number one fan of that yet. <laughs> and, and it, you know, makes the, it loosens the <laughs> tongue a little bit. The stories flow. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You just have to be careful if you're writing a book. Um, like you are about this, you got to be careful because some of those craft beers are much uh, stronger than the beer you'll buy at a grocery store or, or such. Oh yeah, oh my God, that is true. I mean, some of them like fourteen percent, yeah. and things like that. Um, but but it's ironic. Uh, the very first book haunted uh, Hamilton. 
I was writing about a haunted pub called the Winking Judge in Hamilton, mm-hmm. and uh, lo and behold, I didn't make it. I didn't actually get into the into that pub until after the book was published. I was doing the research based on articles I've read that were in the newspaper and paranormal research uh, groups that had done stories. So it wasn't until the book came out I went, I handed a copy to the manager, said, "Hey, this is a book about the pub." I, I, I since became a regular at the pub, and you can say <laughs> I ended up haunting it uh, for for years. And it's still it's still one of my favorite haunts when I'm when I'm back in Hamilton to uh, to hang out at the Judge. Uh, I haven't seen uh, anything uh, strange, uh, you know, up on the second floor like the Judge that allegedly uh, from the men's room on the second floor. You you see him floating outside the window, looking in at you. I've, I avoid looking out the window when I'm up there for that reason. I just want to enjoy the craft beer. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? As we're going to be talking about haunted hospitals in a, in a moment here, and, and hospitals seem to have uh, a higher than normal um, level of activity as as a group than maybe other types of buildings. But pubs also rank right up there. What is it about spirits and spirits? Spirits and spirits. You know what? Uh, I think hospitals and pubs share one thing in common, is that um, they're places of highs and lows. And when you think about uh, whether you think a, a ghost is a um, um, uh, residual uh, spirit as, as opposed to an in- intelligent uh, uh, haunting, and you think at a pub, people are celebratory, they're partying, they're, 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 you know, people fall in love, people fall out of love, horrible things happen, people are depressed. Uh, in hospitals, great things happen, horrible things happen, the highs and lows of emotions. So when you think about residual hauntings, what places would have the most residual effect um, than you know, bars, pubs, or hospitals, if, if that's one of the things that you believe that a ghost could be? So the, they, those are two places that are rife for experience. Now, of course, the other thing I think about pubs is... We close our minds. When we're children, there's a lot of things. uh, We actually have better taste buds when we're kids. And then the reason we like more food when we get older is because our taste buds die off the older we get. And so let's imagine that when you're kids, you know, the reason I was scared of the monster under my bed when I was a kid, and I still am, is because I could tell that there was one there. And as you grow up, you you lose your ability to, to sense that. And, and some people call that growing up. I, I'd say that's, um, you know, <laughs> growing blind to the monsters that are really there. And so I wonder if when you're at a pub, if the alcohol loosens a little bit of those inhibitions that have been forced on you, and maybe you're actually open to seeing things. Some people might say maybe you're seeing things because of the alcohol. <laughs> Someone else might say maybe you've just loosened up a little bit. That's a great observation. And I also like the observation that you made regarding uh, hospitals and pubs, and these are locations that have a lot of emotion. And I'll add to that list uh, battlefields. I mean, we all know that um, you oh. know, Gettysburg is one of the most active paranormal places. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of people in this industry that start their their professional story with saying, well, I was in Gettysburg, and I had this experience. Um, wow. Because there's a lot of, mo- of emotion there. So, I mean, based on just that anecdote, we could probably uh, say with a lot of confidence that uh, emotional energy has something to do with what we're talking about here. Oh yeah, most likely. Yeah, most likely for sure. And and I mean, in hospitals, on on top of on top of the emotion, think about a place where people come and go in and out of this world. Right, you're born, lots of people die. Yeah, uh, battlefields as well. Uh, less people die in pubs than in battlefields. But when you think about that, any places where people come into the world or leave the world, I, I think of it like a, a channel or a stream. 
imagine like a small stream with a little bit of water trickling in, and the more water that flows through there, it just erodes the sides and it becomes a thicker stream. So imagine places like battlefields or hospitals where there is that uh, activity between the between our world and the other world, that it, it's wider and therefore more things can pass through. So that's that's another that's another uh, theory that kind of fits in with those locales as well. Your um your earlier books uh, seem to focus on uh, uh, you know a city at a time kind of um, haunted hospitals is a little bit different. It's a type of facility as opposed to a single geographic location. What drew your attention to the hospital phenomenon? Uh, it was kind of funny. So I'd had a few books out, out already on on specific cities, and they were usually cities I lived in, and realized hey. There's never been a book of ghost stories about the city. I should write one so people who love the city can learn more about it in a fun way. And I was at a, a conference in uh, Calgary, Alberta, a writer's conference. And at the end of the one day, the you know, sessions are over and the writers are sitting around drinking. I was probably having a craft beer. Uh, Rhonda Parrish was sitting with me and a whole bunch of other writers. And at a particular time, she leaned over and whispered, I live near a haunted hospital. And so, of course, I leaned in and said, tell me more. And and we just kind of went off into our own little world. We spent the next hour sharing stories. She was talking about this uh, hospital in the neighborhood in Edmonton, Alberta, where she lived. And, and I shared some stories that I picked up but had never used in, a, in any of my books because I didn't have enough uh, to, to, to make a full chapter. And then by the next day, we realized, we've got to write this book. I'll pitch it to my publisher. Uh, they, they wanted it. Um, and, and, and this was neat because it was like 30% of the stories are Canadian, 30% are U.S., and then 30% are kind of rest of the world. Um, we wanted to focus on North America, but that was um, – I, I love when a, a collaboration just happens out of a casual conversation. Yeah. That's so much fun. I don't know. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but my my very faulty memory um, seems to be saying something to me right now that there's a film – it's actually one of my one of my favorite more recent films called um, Grave Encounters, and this okay. is this is a film about um, some go- TV ghost hunters basically that have an episode that goes terribly wrong and they disappear and the people find the footage of the episode and they watch it and it seems to me it was filmed in a Canadian, uh, I think it was an abandoned hospital. I'm gonna- I betcha it was in British Columbia. I betcha it was, um, uh, what's the name of the hospital now? I'm drawing a blank. Hang on. Um, it was the Riverview Hospital probably in British Columbia because that's been on, that's been in countless movies. I know they filmed multiple episodes of Supernatural there, uh, The X-Files. I, I wonder if that's the, the I'm gonna I'm going to ask uh, folks in my chat room to look it up for me. The film is called Grave Encounters and not the second one, but the first one. And I'm, I'm curious as to what facility it was filmed at. So they'll, they'll let us know here in a few minutes. So as you started to explore this, where did you get the, the most of the stories from? Obviously, you had a few amongst friends and you chatted about them. That kind of fueled the idea. But uh, how did you start collecting the others? So uh, there's a, a few different things we did. So because it was co-authored, Rhonda and I had a shared Google Doc. And so she was going to write about the Charles Cam- Campbell Hospital in her neighborhood. I was going to write about a couple places near where I lived or I had already even written about in previous books, right? So the haunted hospital that was in Spooky Sudbury, I just came back, re- did, went back to my research and, and took the approach of the hospital as opposed to the city. <laughs> um, so we did that. 
we also uh, we, we went and did some searches. We did uh, we, we watched a lot of uh, shows. We, we, we follow paranormal investigators to see what they're doing and places they've gone to. Uh, television shows that if they're no longer on the air, we get the DVDs, get a lot of books. And then I even will put out, um, like I even have a call for a couple new books I'm working on right now. But there's a form on my website because a lot of times people will want to share their own paranormal experience. And so uh, to make it easier, I have an online form that basically says, is this about a place? Did it happen to you? Is it, did you hear from, like, you know, check boxes? Uh, tell me a little bit about it. Um, can I use your name? Can I call you? Can I email you for more details? Because a lot of times people don't give me enough. I need to, to get back to them and ask right. a few more questions. Um, can I, should I use a pseudonym for you? <laughs> or can I share your name, right, to protect your your innocence, uh, and then ask for their permission to use the story. And then in some cases, uh, the, you know, there's the a story I have for a forthcoming book where, where uh, a woman was bitten by a demon, that she believes it was a demon that bit her, and she's got pictures of the bite marks um, that had happened. So, you know, sometimes they'll submit uh, a photo or even a photo of the locale where they were. Um, and so that's, so I get it. It's a combination of research. Now, the other thing I will do uh, it's, I love going on ghost walks. So whenever I get an opportunity. So for example, for Creepy Capital, when I was writing the Ottawa book, I lived in Ottawa for 10 years, but Liz and I went on multiple ghost walks that they ran uh, in the area. And often uh, when you when you talk to the owners at these uh, places, they're willing to sit down you know, at the pub with you or over a coffee and share those stories. Um, oftentimes when I'm doing book signings at libraries or bookstores, I can't uh, almost every single time I've done an in-person event and people find out what I write, they usually kind of wait till no one else is around, and then they say, listen, i got to tell you a story. Right. And so oftentimes I you know, pull out a pad of paper and say, uh, do you mind if I write this down? <laughs> because I'm going to forget it. Um, so I love, I love, and I love being able to get um, multiple uh, sources for a story so I can, I can, I can layer it with personal experiences research from from books and and oh uh newspapers and magazines i pay for subscriptions to archives of of uh, like newspaper archives and i'm constantly pouring through newspaper archives which is which is how i discovered the uh the penchant for for columns of of ghost stories true ghost stories in, in newspapers that was so popular around the turn of the last century just uh, to update you, uh, I asked Chad about what hospital it was that Grave Encounters was filmed at, and I got a couple re- yeah. responses. Riverview Hospital? Is that the Riverview, one? Yeah. In Coquitlam, yeah. British Columbia? Coquitlam in, in, in British Columbia, yeah, that's right. The Riverview, uh, yeah. That is, um, that's been the site of so, it's just this beautiful old building. And uh, it was actually uh, some of the stories that I remember collecting came from film crews that were uh, in the building (laughs) you know one of them uh, being chased by these ghost dogs uh, and that never materialized thank goodness (laughs) they leapt through the air and then just disappeared before they actually attacked but if you if you you like ghost movies and uh, you like scary movies and you like haunted hospitals and you haven't seen grave encounters i'd highly recommend it it's actually a good one you know what i wrote it down (laughs) it's something i'm gonna have to check out thank you i appreciate that you said that you've had some personal experiences too can you tell us of any of any of them yeah yeah so uh one of the one of the times so liz and i were uh, driving back from orlando florida back up to ontario canada and uh and haunted hospitals had just come out 
I think it would come out like three months earlier. And uh, and we were going to be coming through West Virginia on our way back. And it was the Trans-Allegheny uh, Lunatic Asylum, yep. which uh, Rhonda had written about. But so when she when, when when my co-author would write about it, I don't know the details as well. I don't know all the intimate details in the stories the way I would if I had written that chapter. So it's it was fascinating to me to know. Oh, this is this is one of Rhonda's chapters. But I'm going to go there. I'm going to get some pictures. And we went on a 90 minute uh, tour of the, uh, the the wing for the criminally insane. Right. It was just a fascinating tour of. of so I got to see some firsthand things. Took hundreds of pictures, and. It was on the way there, so nothing creepy happened in that hospital, although mm-hmm. it, it's allegedly one of the most haunted places around. But one of the things that happened was coming the night before, so we were driving from Orlando. Uh, we're on the highway for 14 hours. We wanted to get there. We wanted to check into a hotel, go on the tour first thing in the morning, and then get back in the car and, and probably another six or seven hours to get home. Um, and so that would be that would be fine. We get in around one in the morning. We go to check into the first hotel. First hotel, I, you know, in the middle of nowhere, west in West Virginia, and um, just in the hills, just prior to getting into the town. Foggy mountains, and they're like, no, there's no beds. So they keep going down the highway. They'll, they'll be in a Cono Lodge. They'll probably have rooms. And so we get in the highway. Liz is driving. Uh, I run into the Econo Lodge, and they say, well, we have one room left. And this sounds like one of those creepy horror stories. Yeah, it does. <laughs> there's one room left, and there's no queen or king-size bed. It's two double beds. And I was like, hey, it's one in the morning. We're going to bed. Uh, we'll take it. So we check in. We move into the room. <clears throat> Liz is really, really tired. She says, I'll take the bed beside the the um, uh, the bathroom. You take the one closest to the door. And she's out like a light. Like, she can just sleep at the drop of a hat, and she's she's brave. She's not the chicken like me. It takes me forever to fall asleep. So she puts a hoodie on because it's kind of chilly. She rolls over, faces the wall because she's out. It takes me a while to go to sleep. i got to read a little bit. got to read something calm and peaceful. And then I finally fall asleep. And I wake up, and I hear her get out of bed. And I look up, and I see her at the end of the bed. And I can hear her feet shuffling as she's moving towards the washroom. And I lay there, and I'm waiting for her to turn on the washroom light. And I'm playing, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I'm like, why is she not turning on the light? And then I can hear her breathing in the bed beside me. Mm-hmm. And I sat up and went, oh, my God, there's a woman in the room. And I freaked out because we had stayed in a, in a, in a, a, a way crappier hotel that was very similar to the layout on the way down. And I remember we were so scared that we actually, not of ghosts or anything, but we actually put furniture in front of the door. Just to, <laughs> we were worried about someone breaking in. And so I sat up and went, oh my God, there's a woman in the room. And I looked around and I, and I checked and I was like, no, the, the latch is still on the door. Mark, calm down, relax, you're fine. I looked, my, my laptop bag was there. You know, our passports are sitting on the table at the end of my bed. Everything's fine. You, it's your imagination. You've you know been on the highway all day. You're going to a haunted place tomorrow. Go to sleep, you idiot. Do not wake her up. Because <laughs> because I'm the kind of guy. I when we'd be camping, I'd be like, Liz, I heard. I think Bigfoot's outside. You know, I, I get scared of things. So so I finally managed to calm myself down enough to go back to sleep. And then it must have been I don't know. Oh, uh, the other thing I told myself is I thought, oh, I was laying there. I saw Liz get up. She moved into the bathroom. I fell asleep, and you know how you, you fall asleep and you've been asleep for five minutes, but it felt like 30 seconds passed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so I thought maybe I fell asleep. She went back to bed. I woke up and thought 30 seconds had passed, but it really been five minutes. So that's how I explained it to myself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to go to sleep. Right. So then I don't know. I go back to sleep and I hear this clunking noise as if some something had dropped, like a phone or something had dropped onto the table at the end of my bed where my laptop bag and everything was. And I sat up again and I said, there's someone in a room. I can I can hear them. I can feel them. And I and I checked the door again. The door is fine. And I look at the uh, to see if there's an adjoining door to another room. There is not one. And I'm thinking, okay, this is you're crazy. You're, you go back to bed. So I ended up going back to bed. Nothing else happened. I woke up in the morning and I thought I would share with her. I said, hey, um, funny a funny thing happened. Did you did you get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? And she goes, oh no, I didn't get up at all. I did. I was out. You know, I rolled over. Didn't even you know move the whole night. And uh, and then I told her what I thought I saw and heard, and she said, "Well, I, I wasn't going to say anything, but in the middle of the night, I was laying there facing the wall, and I felt someone standing over me." She said, "At first, I thought it was you, but then I felt a hand on my shoulder, and mm-hmm. that wasn't your hand. I know, I know your touch. It was not your touch, and I realized it wasn't you. It was a woman." that was touching my shoulder and she thought, Oh my God, someone's broken into the room. Now she's very feisty and brave. So she steals herself up and is ready to roll over and just nail them. And there's nothing there. There's nobody there. And she went back to sleep thinking that she had just, you know, been dreaming. And it wasn't until I said, I thought I saw a woman at the end of her bed shuffling around the, the end of the bed and that I heard something in the room that she said, well, I felt something. And she felt definitely that there was a woman there. So that was, that was kind of freaky. Now, of course, I rushed down to the hotel desk uh, in the morning, and, and I didn't say what happened. I just asked, anyone ever reported any strange things? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I haven't been able to find any other stories from that locale. But if I do a Haunted host- uh, Hotels book, yeah, uh, that'll probably get in there. Yeah, well, that's, an, that's another uh, category. I mean, I know as somebody who's done a lot of ghost hunting and worked with the TV show Ghost Hunters for a lot of years, we had a lot of success with hotels. In fact, the Stanley mm-hmm. Hotel is one of our favorite places, um, you oh. know, the, the inspiration for the for Stephen King's Shining. Oh, yeah, of course. And, and I think about hotels, right? Think about the, all the things that happen yeah. <laughs> in, in hotel rooms right. and the tragedies and the highs and the lows, too, right? That's exactly right. Let's talk about a few of the stories in Haunted hospitals. Uh, what are some of the ones that particularly send shivers down your spine? So one of them came when I was on a late night radio program and it came in, it came from a, a, somebody who called in and uh, he was working at this uh, Pinocchio Institute in Alberta. And this just still makes my, my hair stand on end. So he was working there and there was a woman who had been institutionalized her entire life. She lived there since she was a, a young teenager. And there would, she would often have violent outbursts, and she had this supernatural strength that she could throw people off of her. They constantly had to sedate her. She would bite. She would fight with them. There was a there was belief in some of the some of the staff there that she must have been possessed in order for her to contain, because she was a relatively small woman, but she had such strength. And other things would happen uh, in this ho- in this hospital, where she would be in a room. And the room would be ice cold, and she would complain about being freezing cold. And they would check, and there's nothing wrong with the, the, the thermostat or the heater. Everything was fine. They'd move her into another room. The room she had been in would go back to normal temperature, and then the one they, she, they moved her to would, would 
would be freezing again as if it was following her around. Well, one night he was working and had to do some rounds and go and check in on, on the patients to make sure everything was okay. And, and he gets to her room. He walks into the room and he opens the room and she's standing there in, in, in the dark mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, which is kind of creepy on its own. Yeah. But she's not standing on the floor. She's standing uh, horizontally uh, with her feet on the wall. She's about three feet off the floor, standing out as if gravity is not affecting her at all. Although it was affecting her hair, so her hair was hanging down. So she was, par- was parallel, parallel to the floor. Parallel to the floor. Wow. Three feet up with her feet on the wall, and she seemed to be sleeping because he could hear the breathing noises that she was sleeping. He closed the door, went back to the TV room, and just sat there and stared at the TV. Had no idea what was on, didn't say anything to any of the other workers, didn't know what to say. He had relayed that story on this uh, radio program, and it was another listener to the radio program who recognized his voice because he used a fake name Mm -hmm. and recognized the institution and had worked with him, contacted him the next week, went out for coffee and said, listen, you shared that story. I never told you something that happened to me. He had been working around the same time had gone into the hospital one night into one in her room, and he saw the same sort of thing, except what he saw is she was standing about three feet off the floor straight up um, with her feet, like so she was vertical. Mm-hmm. And again, her she was sleeping. She was completely out of it. She had no idea what was going on, but her body was just levitating in, 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 in space there. And again, he didn't say anything until he heard his friend re- reveal that. And, and the, kind of, the two of them kind of felt a little bit better. Because they realized that they weren't alone, that they weren't the only ones who did it. I guess there's and some remember, there's some comfort there, but still, wow. Yeah, and I just remember I was so I was I was I was in my apartment. It was probably two in the morning when I was on this program, and I was just you know there's just the one spot of light above me, and I'm just thinking, oh, the shadows are creeping in now, and I'm I'm imagining walking into my bedroom and seeing this woman standing on the side of the wall, and I was just like, oh god. Uh, so that that one stuck with me, and you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to reach out to did, uh, the producer of the radio program, get in contact with this uh, gentleman who did end up sharing uh, more details that I could add to the book. But yeah. that one that stuck with me. After you after you found out about this story and you wrote about it, did you, did you get any indication as to whether or not there was any clergy ever involved or any follow up to that, whereby uh, you know a possession was investigated? Did you get any of any hear anything about that? Well, no. I remember him explaining that the staff would often have meetings uh, about her, about how to deal with her, because they didn't know how to deal with her. They didn't know, you know, the only way they could deal with her half the time was to tranquilize her because wow. you know, because of the outburst. But I don't, I don't recall them talking about bringing in an, ex- an exorcist or something like that. Wow. I mean, it wouldn't take too many. Uh... Uh, instances of me walking into a room and seeing a girl standing on the wall, <laughs> perpendicular, or parallel to the floor yeah. before I before <laughs> no I'd look for some professional help. <laughs> um, wow, that's a great story, though. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that was a, that was a freaky one. Um, when you do interviews like this or uh, others, I know you've done many, and you start telling some of these stories. Do you get people that reach out to you and say, "Hey, I've got one for you." Uh, yeah, actually, uh, which is why I have the form on my website. Um, 
actually had somebody reach out to me on Twitter just a couple of days ago to start to share some stories. And I was like, you know, 140 characters is difficult. Let's, <laughs> let's do, let's just do a video chat. Hey, can, you know, then, then we can kind of, uh, we can chat about it. And if you're willing, I can um, record it. Or uh, that's why I have the form on the website because um, there's so many people who've had experiences and they feel like they're alone, but then they realize, Oh my God, I've had something that was weird. And I can't explain it. And, um, and so that's, yeah, that happens all the time, which is why I end up creating those forms. And the forms are also just so people can understand. Um, I think I, I, if I can give you an example of, of one of the ones that came in on a form. Yeah, sure. I'd love to hear it. Is it more of a UFO uh, story? But the gentleman had filled up my form, and he had basically said, oh, we were, we were, uh, we were hunting in the middle of the woods in northern Ontario, and, uh, and uh, we woke up in the middle of the night, and there's this weird bright light, and it lit up the entire sky like it was the middle of the afternoon, and then it disappeared, and then it was quiet for a good minute or two. And then the crickets and all the, the night creatures and critters that you would normally hear uh, came back on. And I thought, well, that was fascinating, but... That would have been like a paragraph. I needed longer. Right. So I went back to him, asked more questions, found out, oh, no, no, he was 17. Oh, and it was the first time he had ever gone hunting. Oh, and here are some other things. And, here's some, and so more details came out as I asked more questions. And then I wrote the story. And I sent it to him because for authenticity, I ended up, as a storyteller, I elaborate and I fill in details that make sense to me that dialogue and things that were probably said. And I usually show it to the person who shared the story to say, is this something that, does this sound true? Where am I wrong? Where am I right? Help me fix this. And he came back to me. So I, I basically, I, I told the story and you know, he was nervous. It was his first time. He was 17. He was with older uh, guy, boys. They were ribbing him, they were teasing him, they were mocking him, they were playing cards around the fire, there were fart jokes and all kinds of stuff, and I had different pieces of dialogue, and then in the middle of the night when they woke up, there was the dialogue of them talking to each other about, what is that, do you hear that? And they rush out and stumble out of the, of the trailer and, and look up into the sky, and it's the reaction they all have seeing each other. And uh, and I did elaborate quite a bit, and, and I sent it to him, and he wrote back, and he goes, oh my God, it's like you were there. Um, and, and, and I realized I was just filling in the details with what made sense to me right. based on, you know, rite of passage for, for, for men in, in hunting communities and stuff like that. And, uh, and so I, I find I, I can often get the, 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 the real story or the, the depth of the story by having that back and forth, um, just asking more questions or, or sometimes filling in the detail with something that feels like it makes sense. And then they can tell me if I'm wrong and I cut it or I elaborate more. Okay. Mark, I've got to ask you, who the heck is Barnaby Bones? <laughs> Barnaby <laughs> Bones is my skeletal companion. So uh, I realized uh, because of the kinds of books I write, um, you often you walk in a mall and you see uh, some lonely author sitting at a table with a bunch of books <laughs> right. and nobody wants to make eye contact with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I realized, uh, and, and it started off with a uh, skeleton, uh, a skull called York that it used to put on the table with me. And, and then I got a full-size uh, six-foot uh, skeleton, Barnaby Bones, and I'd sit him beside the table with me because it tells you one, one of two things. If you're into the paranormal or macabre or, or the, the unknown, unexpected, you're probably going to be attracted and come over to see what I'm up to. Or you're going to turn the other way and never want to talk to me because you know to avoid me, because that's not your cup of tea. So 
Uh, Barnaby is also a, um, uh, an icebreaker. So a lot of people will come up and make a joke about my buddy looks like he's been sitting there a long time or he needs to eat, which is a perfect joke to say, well, if only somebody would buy a book, then maybe I could feed him. <laughs> uh, you know, it, but the icebreaker is great because it gives people an excuse to come talk to you. And so Barnaby, uh, I actually have four of them now because uh, the Barnaby hanging behind me on the wall in the, in the office here, if this were a video chat, uh, you'd see him over my shoulder, <laughs> looking looking down on me. Um, uh, his legs broke off because uh, the spines break. Because you know, I travel with him uh, a lot of places. Uh, I actually have two other ones in my car right now. Uh, one of them's a full skeleton that I would take and, and bring into events. The other one, again, is the upper half of the torso. <laughs> that, because right now there's uh, kids walking by in the neighborhood and, and they love seeing them dressed up in different costumes. <laughs> but um, it, he's just been a he's been a companion. I also put a T-shirt on with my book cover, put him, sit him in the mall. People want to take pictures with him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a really fun uh, branding exercise as an author, and um, yeah, and it's just been something that's been part of my brand. Now, when people see skeletons or skull stuff, they'll just share it to you know to my Facebook page. Hey, I saw this really cool skeleton thing, this decor, uh, and of course, our entire house is uh, there's probably like. 12 or 15 skulls in the um in my home office here uh <laughs> and uh skull cup near the front door where we just put our keys in it's one of those uh, you know fountains mm-hmm. those big standing fountains right, just uh-huh. like a bunch of skulls piled up on top that uh, most people buy them for halloween we just keep them out all year round oh that's awesome i i uh, have to tell you i helped a friend um clean out a garage once of somebody who had passed away and we're going through um a bunch of just stuff and there was this garbage bag and we pulled out the garbage bag, opened it up. And inside this garbage bag was a full human skeleton, which really freaked us out. Now it turns out human skeleton. Yeah, it was real. And it turned the, um, the home belonged to a physician and this, this skeleton had been in their office, but even so we had, we had to call the police and the police had to come and determine, you know, the origin and all this stuff. I mean, there was, it was a real, uh, real ordeal, uh, when you find a human skeleton. Yeah, it was wild. It was wild. So I'm assuming (laughs) Barnaby isn't actually real human bones. No, no, Barnaby is plastic. (laughs) Barnaby, so Barnaby the fourth, I guess, is the one that I'm currently going. So, um, Um, yeah, we're 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 almost out of time here. I know you're working on on other things. I want you to take a second and go back to something you you mentioned uh, early in our conversation about these uh, tales that your publisher said were too uh, dark to be included. I think you said it was in Macabre Montreal. I think that was the book. Um, and and these are going to be published separately. Yeah, so Two Macabre uh, for Montreal is going to be coming out in the fall uh, of 2020. And so that'll be available in print and in uh, uh, ebook format. And we're probably, it's short enough, I can probably narrate the audiobook because it's going to be less than 20,000 words. So it'll be available in all formats. should be available through libraries, bookstores, whatever. So uh, easy, easily consumable in different formats. And is Haunted Hospitals available now? Oh, Haunted Hospitals is available in ebook and print. It's available everywhere online that you can find books like Amazon, et cetera. You can order it through a local bookstore. Ask for it at your local library, too. And I know you have a, a form on your website that people can fill out if they want to share a story. Is that the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm currently uh, working on another book, Demonic Dolls, Screaming Skulls, and Other Haunted Objects. Oh, wow. So uh, Haunted Objects is uh, one I'm working on. Uh, Weird Waterloo. Uh, a lot of your listening audience probably don't live in Waterloo, Ontario, but that's where I live. Because, <laughs> uh, again, I, I want to write a, a, a ghost story about the, the city I live in now. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, there's always, there's a lot. And, of course, Haunted Bars and Brewery, Spirits Untapped. So, constantly looking for uh, for fresh new stories. A lot of great stuff coming up from you, Mark, and I hope you'll agree to come back. This has been a great time tonight, a great conversation. I've had a lot of fun. Oh, I have too. It was uh, awesome chatting with you, JB. Thanks so much. And again, the website is marklesley.ca, as in Canada. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.